Welcome on in, friends. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. We are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And here we go. We are scant five days away, I believe, from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference and a week away from AMEBC's Roundup 2018. So things are heating up. The phone lines are burning up. Uh, my email is exploding. We've got a lot of uh, lot of stories that people are excited about heading into conference season. Uh, obviously, we've seen that gold price uh, sneaking up there to that 1350 range, which is often viewed as sort of a, a key stress point there on the way up. So uh, we have stayed healthily above $1,300 per ounce gold healthily above three dollars per pound copper zinc still flirting up there with a dollar fifty per pound and uh tertiarily we've seen that sort of surge in west texas intermediate oil prices up towards seventy dollars a barrel u.s so exciting times for the natural resource industry we're really interested to see uh where the macro economies and fundamentals will take us in 2018 But before we crack into some of those big economic and political stories in our news and notes of the week, I wanted to quickly run down a couple noteworthy items for the Northern Miner heading into the conferences in Vancouver this coming week. Uh, First and foremost, as Leslie noted last week, uh, we will be having a book signing with beloved Northern Miner cartoonist John Kilburn. Uh, This will be happening at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference on Sunday, January 21st, between 12 p.m. and 2 p.m. This is at the Northern Miner's booth, which is number 913. So if you're interested in A, a copy... Uh, of the uh, John Kilburn mining cartoon anthology or to meet the man himself and chat get a book signing etc please do swing by the booth and even if you can't make it for uh, that specific event do swing by our booth get a free copy of the paper Uh, you can chat with some of our uh, excellent staff out of Toronto uh, and look at maybe getting that subscription that I'm always harping on about on the podcast Uh, but if you can't always do head over to northernminer.com to catch our industry leading coverage of both events the uh, VIRC and AMEVC's roundup. On my end, I do have a couple speaking engagements happening at the VIRC. If you're uh, interested in swinging by, saying hello, uh, checking up on uh, what's going on with the podcast and things like that, uh, on uh, the Sunday, January 21st at uh, VIRC, I will be doing a junior corporate update and CEO roundtable uh, with a few Yukon companies at the Yukon Pavilion between 11.30 and 12 p.m. I should be on the ta- uh, floor, I should say, most of that day. Uh, then on Monday, uh, I will be at Investing Day, and uh, we'll be doing a roundtable with Byron King from The Daily Reckoning Agora Financial uh, and David Earthley from Junior Minor Junkie and myself uh, about what's changing in the sector and effects on different regions. So we're going to be talking about uh, macroeconomic fundamentals, uh, talking a little bit about uh, North American jurisdictions uh, and what's sort of happening in the industry in terms of investor interest, uh, what sort of plays are appealing to people, what's moving ahead, what's advancing uh, and what some of the institutions are talking about uh, in terms uh, of uh, attractive investments and uh, bullish scenarios heading into uh, 2018 in terms of fundamentals. Uh, So uh, if you listen to the podcast, you'll probably hear me talk about a lot of the same themes we cover on here, uh, including my recent discussions with some of the institutional analysts, etc. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the gold fundamentals, copper, nickel, zinc, uh, talking a little bit about thermal coal, which I'm putting something together on. It's become one of my sort of f- sort of pet stories here heading into 2018 is how strong the thermal seaborne coal market's going to be. So we'll be talking about all that fun stuff. Once again, that's at Investing Day at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. I'll be on a panel uh, between 12 and 1 p.m. So do check that out. Uh, at the Yukon Pavilion. 
And that is sort of a rough schedule for what we will be up to at the conferences next week. But please do not hesitate to uh, flag me down if you see me wandering around. I will be at the on the uh, floor at both events uh, most of the time. Uh, we do have to uh, take a little bit of a break next Tuesday to record uh, next week's episode. Uh, I, I have a, a few good guests lined up already. Uh, the conferences always provide us with an absolute wealth of podcast uh, opportunities. So we'll have some of our favorite guests on, uh, including Brent Cook and Joe Mazumdar from Exploration Insights, as well as Milky Fulp. The uh, mercenary geologist who's always a favorite um, but uh, as, as well as uh, countless other people have got lined up so uh, we'll probably have enough um, <laughs> enough material for the podcast for like a month after uh, these two events but once again if you do see me on the floor please don't hesitate to uh, pull me aside we can definitely shoot the breeze for a little bit and uh, catch up on what's going on in the business but now let's sally forth into this week's episode which is an exciting one because I've finally done it I've been talking about it for a while now but I've put together our inaugural engineering corner that's right that's right i've listened to the cries and the demands and the 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 emails why why matt is there a geology corner but there is no engineering corner the engineering fraternity demands a voice so we have we have done it here for you folks we have an engineering corner uh we're going to bring in uh, a rotation of engineers to talk a little bit about uh some of the technical and investing elements from their side of the business And we wanted to do this in much the same fashion that we do the geology corner. So uh, what we always try to do here at the Northern Miner is break down maybe some of this more dense technical uh, terminology and literature in such a way that it's digestible and applicable for everyone. Even those of us who maybe don't have long, extensive technical backgrounds and things like engineering, geology, metallurgy. uh, We want to break these ideas down, the terminologies and the colloquial way they tend to speak about some of these things uh, for people so that they can apply these these ideas and, and opinions and uh, insights when they look at uh, press releases, technical documents, uh, investment opportunities, etc. So we're going to bring in engineers to sort of have frank conversations about what they think about disclosure, what they think about 43101 requirements, uh, you know, what are some of the fatal flaws they look for in investments in mine plans. And I'm really excited to pair this with the geology corner because though uh, these two occupations and technical backgrounds work very closely to develop profitable mines and discover them for that matter, they do not always agree. So it will be very exciting to, uh, to, to put this sort of roundtable idea together and hopefully get some geologists and engineers on the show simultaneously to have some interesting discussions about uh, about these really uh, you know topical items we're talking about now in terms of disclosures transparencies uh, where the next generation of mines is going to come from in terms of discovery but also in terms of how technology and innovation and and mine construction is changing so it's going to be really fun and for this inaugural engineering corner. Uh, I called in a favor from an old friend of mine. Uh, We're going to have Stefan Wozniak, who is a senior engineer at Procon Mining and Tunneling on the show this week. And he is currently uh, working actually as the uh, sort of project manager and uh, senior engineer up at Pretium's Bruce Jack Mine. So uh, doing contract mining up there. Obviously, I know people, we laugh about this a little bit. People are like, oh, Pretium, uh, he can't talk about that, unfortunately. We're not really here to talk about the specific project. This is more of a a broader conversation uh, on engineering on 43101s, on disclosure. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about some of the major trends in underground and open pit mining that are happening currently uh, and what sort of innovations Stefan has seen uh, as an engineer 
working uh, practically uh, with boots on the ground experience uh, in the underground right now. So uh, it's a really cool uh, discussion, and I'm really looking forward to running that. It runs about uh, 20 minutes, I believe, 25 minutes. Uh, so that should be a good one. We'll run that a bit later in the show, actually right after our news and notes. So let's crack into that so we can get you right on over to the engineering corner. First and foremost, gold has continued its post-Christmas rally and now gained nearly 8% over the last month. The yellow metal closed at $1,339 per ounce at the time of recording and has gained over $19 per ounce in the past week. In terms of gold equities, the Van Eck Vectors Junior Gold Miners ETF has jumped 15% since mid-December, while the S&P TSX Venture Index has gained 14% over the same period, with the venture reaching a high of 939 points on Tuesday. Uh, Meanwhile, the S&P TSX Global Gold Index has risen 5 points to 200 since the beginning of the year. And amid this rather bullish run in spot gold prices, the World Gold Council has released a forward-looking document uh, on trends to watch in 2018, a rather timely release. Uh, This uh, report takes a rather in-depth look at four major trends that the World Gold Council sees as uh, important to the spot price heading and in market generally heading into uh, the new year. Uh, The first one is a year of synchronized global economic growth. So uh, in early October, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, issued its latest World Economic Outlook. Uh, The IMF raised its 2017 GDP growth forecast for China to 6.8%. That is 0.1% higher than its previous forecast released in July. Uh, For 2018, uh, the IMF estimated the growth will slow to 6.5%, but that's still a 0.1% boost from previous forecasts. Uh, The IMF explained that it expects Chinese authorities will, quote, maintain a sufficiently expansionary policy mix, uh, especially through high public investment, to meet their target of doubling real GDP between 2010 and 2020. Uh, And meanwhile, as we know in the U.S., uh, the Trump presidency is likely looking at a GDP growth figure north of 3% uh, for 2017. Uh, And the figure Trump has quoted as 4% he's looking at for 2018. People aren't so incredulous that's going to happen. I've actually seen a few forecasts that, uh, that speculate that the U.S. will see real GDP growth of around 4% next year, or this year, I should say, uh, which is an impressive figure. Uh, we hadn't seen the U.S. jump much above, you know, 25 to 3% recently, uh, and people had said maybe this was a new normal, uh, sort of slow growth among the uh, industrialized Western economies. No longer the case. We're, we are looking at maybe 4-plus percent GDP growth in the U.S. We'll see how the tax reform bill, the uh, Republican tax reform bill, uh, impacts uh, business investment in the country, which could drive real wage growth. So uh, no longer are people sort of incredulous about uh, this sort of reinvigoration of the global industrial economies. Uh, We're seeing a lot of this uh, take place. So there, you know, there's still many overhangs uh, in terms of things like Brexit. So it'll be interesting to see the impact on the spot gold price heading into 2018. Uh, Is there going to be the rate hikes we expect in Canada? Probably two this year. Uh, Will the U.S. Federal Reserve continue to push forward with uh, its sort of tightening policy? So uh, as we said, that leads into number two with uh, the World Gold Council's number two theme here, shrinking balance sheets and rising rates. Uh, And uh, the World Gold Council notes that the U.S. Fed will take the lead as it seeks to shrink its swollen balance sheet. Uh, It plans to let U.S. $50 billion of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities mature each month 
and it is anticipated that by 2020, the U.S. Fed's balance sheet will de- decrease to around U.S. two and a half trillion. That's a lot, but having been at four and a half trillion since 2014, it's a significant cut. Obviously, uh, the U.S. Fed is also expected to raise rates further. Uh, its dot plot has three rate hikes penciled in for 2018, uh, and the market is pricing in at least two hikes and a small chance of a third. Uh, the third World Gold Council uh, sort of theme for 2018 is frothy asset prices. As we know, uh, in the U.S., the S&P 500 is at an all-time high, uh, and its cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, CAPE, is at its highest level since the peak of the dot-com bubble in 2000. Now, we don't know, obviously, as from a gold investor's point of view, uh, it's, it, quoting this as frothy is uh, is good because that would insinuate that you should hold some gold because if U.S. equities go down, that's sort of where you want to be. Uh, as terms of uh, the the legs that this U.S. stock rally has, uh, we've heard for a long time uh, that it should be going down, but it has not yet. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the S&P heading into 2018. Uh, one of the things I did note is that uh, some of the skeptics in terms of the U.S. economy have gotten a little bit less pronounced in their skepticism, let's say, uh, because they are sort of uh, speculating there will be real wage growth in a lot of the Western economies heading into 2018. Some of that business investment will come back. There will be more jobs. Uh, U.S. unemployment is also already around 4%, which is insanely low. Um, and uh, so we're, we're, there is some speculation that you will start to see that real wage growth heading into 2018, which means, uh, well, the economies do look to be on firmer footings. Uh, and finally, World Gold Council's fourth and, uh, as mentioned, final point is market transparency, efficiency, and access. Uh, This is sort of a a side note, but, you know, regulatory reforms in terms of uh, uh, expanding transparency and efficiency for markets, creating new gold exchanges, etc. So uh, that's another one to watch heading into 2018, according to the World Gold Council. Flipping over to the base metal side, we are obviously talking copper, zinc, and nickel to start 2018. Copper is up 21.7% year over year. Zinc is up 26.8% year over year. And nickel is up 24.1% year over year. Uh, Analysts reportedly expect further supply disruptions and an improvement in demand in 2018 backed by as we mentioned recovery in global manufacturing uh zinc hit a decade high earlier this week uh trading above about uh close to 160 dollar uh 60 per pound uh which we haven't seen since august 2007 uh the price was reportedly driven by concerns over a possible price squeeze as inventory levels continued to decline Finally, our friends at BMO took an in-depth look at the Chinese copper market and noted that they believe concentrate imports will need to rise by over 10% year-on-year. BMO says that assuming normal disruption levels, this is possible. However, any underperformance from either Chilean or Chinese mined output would accelerate the arrival of the refined market deficit currently anticipated for mid-2019. And that wraps up our news and notes for the week. So let's head right on over to the inaugural engineering corner with Procon Mining and Tunneling's Stefan Wozniak. If you're not familiar with Procon, it is an experienced full-service provider of start-to-finish solutions for the mining industry, which include the ability to build and operate even the most complex open pit or underground mining developments and civil infrastructures. Procon tailors its solutions to meet clients' precise needs and provide excellent service, quality construction, state-of-the-art equipment, and safe and highly efficient operations. So let's pull up a seat at the engineering corner with Procon's Stefan Wozniak. (music) 
and welcome on in to the Engineering Corner. Stefan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll start out a little bit with maybe your background. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I uh, started off, I graduated from University of uh, British Columbia in mining engineering uh, back in the day. And from there, I went down and worked for Phelps Dodge, who's now Freeport McMoran, down in the uh, southern U.S., I was a metallurgist and mining engineer down there for them for a couple of years at a large 60,000 ton a day open pit copper porphyry uh, with a little bit of molly in there as well. And uh, from there, I actually moved back into uh, the junior sector and worked for some exploration companies, a number of groups of exploration companies where we focused on, uh, did some projects, did a gold project in China. Uh, copper oxide leach project in Chile, and then more into Canada and northern BC, specializing in a, a molybdenum project up in northern British Columbia on the old town site of Cassiar, as well as some plays in the Ring of Fire um, and, and around there. So, yeah, during those years, it's probably spent about six years as kind of an exploration manager for those companies, managing uh, consultants, working with geologists project manager for some large drill programs, as well as coordinating pre-fees, scoping studies, and feasibility studies. Uh, after that, I ended up in uh, with Procon Mining and Tunneling, getting back to more pure operations engineering, and I've done a number of projects with them, and I'm currently uh, stationed up at the Bruce Jack project as senior engineer for Procon, managing our contract and operations up at Bruce Jack. And uh, everyone's like, everyone's ears picked up because they're like, Pridium, Bruce Jack, we're not talking about that. You can't talk about it. So nobody get too excited. We're here to talk actually about uh, what I think is even more exciting. We're going to talk about 43101s. Um, now, obviously, we've talked a little bit uh, on the geological side uh, with Leslie and some of our other uh, guests, including Brent Cook from Exploration Insights, uh, who's going to be joining us during uh, the Roundup show next week. So look forward to that. But uh, now we get to talk a little bit about uh, technical reporting from the engineering side. And this is uh, especially important pursuant to preliminary economic assessments and mine developments right through the feasibility stage. Uh, so we wanted to bring Stefan on to talk a little bit about uh, not just authoring these reports and putting them together, um, but also sort of what uh, investors can look at when these are released either via press release or filed on CDAR um, to sort of like pick up on things that might be important in terms of valuing a mining asset. Uh, so we brought Stefan on to talk a little bit about 43101s. I know you have quite a few notes here, Stefan, that you want to get to. Um, so how about we kick it off uh, just from the top here. Um, from an engineering's point of view, I mean, to you, uh, working obviously really closely with the 43101 process, with the regulators, with the filers, uh, maybe just a little bit of a, an overview about uh, for investors just introducing us to the 43101 filing system and what engineers look at when they're putting together their reports. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's a lot of opinions on 43101s and if they're applicable, if they're necessary, uh, it, you know, it's quite a, a, a topic that brings out a lot of opinions. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the important thing is to realize exactly what the 43101 is designed around. You know, it came out of the BRIEX scandal, but the main reason for it is to bring some consistency to the way that data is presented to stop uh, people from using terms or exaggerating what, uh, you know, a mineral deposit's potential is. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that you just 
that's that you understand the reasoning behind it. It's it's a way to standardize the information presented. Mm-hmm. It's not you know an opinion piece where you look at the data and yes, there are recommendations that come out of the various forty three one and one reports, but it is a way f- you know. F- for a professional or an educated investor to be able to compare apples to apples, uh, you know, define certain terminology, and we need that, uh, you know, to be able to do proper analysis of, of a mineral deposit's potential. And it's interesting because you talked about standardization, and that's a, a big topic. I mean, in your opinion, obviously, you've worked across with the majors, with the juniors in different segments. I mean, is the, is it effective? Is it a standard? Like, Because you often hear maybe sometimes people playing around with certain variables in their 43-101 reports to get, you know, if they want a certain internal rate of return, if they want a certain net present value. I mean, does, does in your opinion, I mean, obviously, there's room for that, but broadly, the standardization is sort of working? I would say broadly that the standardization is working, but the problem with it is, is that people forget that it's just a standardization Mm -hmm. and that you need to take that information with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. You look at the raw data that is presented and you try to stay away from some of those conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a classic example that almost all feasibility or pre-fees scoping resource estimates do now is they give you a, a cutoff a grade table with tonnages based on various cutoffs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and what ends up happening is an investor will see, okay, I got a 0.2% copper cutoff and mm-hmm. I have this amazing deposit. Well, really is a 0.2% cutoff a feasible number? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Most likely not. I, I would say almost 99% of the time you're not going to make a deposit with 0.2% copper. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th- that's just an example of there's information presented there and it can be shaped by the owner of the project. You know, the, the owner can request to the engineering company or whoever is doing this report on their behalf that, you know, oh, I don't like uh, to see that tonnage. Uh, can we use a different cutoff grade? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the types of discretion that you see. And, and often the engineering company or, or whoever will, you know, they have a reputation to uphold. So they're not going to just agree with what the owner wants and you come to this compromise. Well, why don't we just present the data uh, with a base case, but let's make sure we show that those lower cutoff grades. And, and what ends up happening is you get then get press releases that quote a, a cutoff grade and an associated tonnage, mm-hmm. but that may not be the most viable or the base case scenario that the engineering group or, or uh, QP intended uh, for that project. So th- there can be difficulties and it, it's a matter of interpretation mm-hmm. and it's a bit of transparency. There's there's ways that the data can be presented that are not true to how the original report uh, was intended. And we, we wanted to preface this, I totally forgot, but we had during our production meeting, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the geological assumptions that go into it. Um, and Stefan wanted to make it very clear before we even started talking about this, that a lot of what the engineering assumptions are, oh, actually I'll let you phrase it the way uh, you, you had before because it was great, but just that, that there is sort of an underpinning assumption with geology here. Absolutely. So the, the geology and the resource estimate form the basis of any mining study. That is the core thing that everything else, all the costing information, all the engineering is based upon. So if there is a mistake or, uh, you know, a very 
optimistic assumption that is made in that data, uh, then there's a, it's highly unlikely that the mining and cost studies will be correct or accurate. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a number of things uh, you can get into this with your geologists, I'm sure, that uh, they go into those resource estimates. But there's things like cutoff grades, there's grade capping, and un- need to understand the basics of Kriging and geostatistics. Uh, so th- there's just a, a huge number of factors that... Uh, a geologist or a geostatistician can make that can influence what those numbers end up being at. So it's really important that you have proper sound data by reputable qualified professionals doing those original resource estimates. Because as we mentioned, they do, you know, form the basis of all other work going forward. And it's funny, I mean, you, we can have, we've had geologists on the, uh, the podcast before and you, you'll have them dispute the benefits of creaking versus the alternatives. We can go on about that for, for days and days if we get the right technical people on the program. But do, uh, do keep in mind, uh, listeners, that everything we sort of talk about on this episode of the Engineering Corner uh, it is assumably underpined by uh, good and practical and thorough geological practices. So it, we're sort of taking that as sort of a, let's say, a, a steady state variable here that the geology is good. Um, so assuming that, uh, we talked a little bit about cutoff grades. There's obviously a, a few things we can go through in terms of the flow sheet. You, you having a metallurgical background as well, we can talk a little bit about recoveries. Um, but so you mentioned so you mentioned one thing people look at is cutoff grades. I mean, when you look at um, the press releases or, or filings yourself as an engineer, what are some of the other major uh, sort of variables that are not that are, are open to interpretation or maybe open to a little bit of a gray space. Yeah, like we, we we talk about cutoff grades and then the other big one you just touched on is is recovery and metallurgical recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one and, you know, a, a lot of people do recognize that that is a, a limitation of some of the resource estimates before they get involved in the engineering. Mm-hmm. And, and I would argue that there could be a, an argument made for including some more of that preliminary engineering data into your resource estimates mm-hmm. because really without a proper you know without a recovery you, you don't have a project but uh, you can get into some other things you know we look at if you take an open pit uh, mine for example we look at the the pit slope angle and some of the geotechnical uh, studies that go into that that can very easily make or break a project uh, you look at the metallurgical flow sheet, um, you know, it's not just recovery, it goes right down to the grindability, uh, the hardness of the rock. We look at the water balance. Is this a project in the, you know, Arizona desert or is this northern BC? Both can cause large issues with either not enough water or too much water to manage. And those can get prohibitively expensive. Uh, so just a couple other things to keep in mind. And I guess the, the issue here is that a lot of those studies costs a lot of money to get the proper data that you need mm-hmm. and that data is not uh i don't know what you'd call it sexy it doesn't <laughs> increase shareholder value the same way as a new drill intercept does and so what you have in the in the smaller junior mining sector is that you have the 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 management of the company under this immense pressure to get positive press results that impact the share price. Low capex, you know, really. Yeah, and yeah. and so you know, there. How do you convince uh, a junior mining company that is worried about their share price and financing and making sure that they can continue for another year that they need to spend a million dollars drilling HQ core for metallurgical studies that'll just be one section mm-hmm. of a, a pre-fees report? Yeah. So 
those are the types of things that uh, you know are often missed, mm-hmm. uh, as well as project location, access requirements, weather, how remote it is, how close it is to a, a power source. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't you don't make a sixty thousand ton a day mine, open pit mine these days without line power. Yeah, but yet you often don't see those discussed in in some of the earlier. Uh, engineering reports or in the resource estimates. And it's interesting, I mean, talk, talking about, um, you, you obviously do procurement and you've worked a little bit in, in that side of the business. So talking about costs a little bit and where companies draw, like sometimes I hear a company say, oh, we're going to buy used equipment. Yep. Or sometimes I hear someone say, oh, we're going to save money on an old camp, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it, you know, it, what's are those commonly applicable like can, can you use is 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 it, is it possible to sort of repurpose a lot of this old equipment and use it on new projects and also where did mining companies tend to get their cost comparables from yeah so that that depends on the level of engineering study that you're at mm-hmm. um so in a typical scoping study or uh yeah scoping study or a pea mm-hmm. uh we often use benchmarking mm-hmm. where you're looking at similar projects that have gone into production or have gone through feasibility and then construction and we're finding something in a, a similar type of area same type of remoteness similar size, similar commodity, and you're trying to benchmark off of those projects. You do a little bit of prorating, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a bit, it's a very basic analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that stage, it is, it, you know, I, I would say it's acceptable um, to use some of those uh, less robust numbers that are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yes, there's a market for used equipment, mm-hmm. but I would, you know, just off the top of my head, I would say that you're probably underestimating your costs if you're <laughs> you're assuming that you can find the exact used equipment that you need for your specific project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and this is especially in, in open pit mining where the equipment is matched very heavily to production rates. And and then you got to look at availability of the used market. Uh, you know, this year in particular, your our lead times for major pieces of equipment are back up probably over a year, 18 months. Mm-hmm. So then that also feeds into your project uh, schedule, your, your project execution plan. So do you have, are you a company that has said that you're going to do an accelerated one year uh, construction schedule, but yet you're, you're going to, you know, find all this used equipment and, and all these other options, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that just may not be the case. And it's it. You mentioned you you got out ahead of me there. The ne- the next one we're going to talk about is production schedule because that's yep. another major topic you hear about uh, that investors should be looking at. Like, what's their their assumed production schedule? What's the guidance on how long it's going to take to build? So before we get into maybe a, a little bit about what variables could affect that, I mean, if if an investor is looking at it, like, what what would be reasonable to you for a, a production schedule for let's say a a typical North American open pit versus underground mine? Oh, that's it's so tough to have a, yeah. a typical number because mm-hmm. it just depends on so many variables. Yeah. But as I mentioned, you have some extremely long lead times, especially for things like sag mills and, and motors yeah. in your mill. You know, those can approach two years. Mm-hmm. So where are you? Are you, do you have the capital right now to, to put a deposit down on those types of long lead items? Mm-hmm. And this is a big problem that a lot of companies get into is mm-hmm. that they haven't yet finished their feasibility or their engineering studies yet they're forced to purchase long lead time equipment mm-hmm. and I, I just honestly believe that that's the kiss of death and we, we've seen a number of failures of companies that have spent a lot of money procuring these long lead time items only for the project not to be as profitable as they originally thought 
Um, I'm not naming names, but that sounds a little bit like the Rubicon Project. But uh, I mean, it, like I was gonna—that's sort of what I've heard—is like if you're safely looking at it, a lot of companies assume 24 months, yep. right, for build time. A yep. lot, uh, two years seems to be a pretty sort of safe assumption for, except unless you're looking at some sort of mega project or something. But but I see a lot that 24 month quote in a lot of feasibility. 24 months is, is pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just got to keep in mind that there can be some high uh, pre-stripping requirements for open pit mines, or there can be some high development requirements that may take a year of, of development before you even get to get to your ore body and, mm-hmm. and often with underground mines that's that's much more than a year mm-hmm. so those are some some of the factors but uh, in the kind of that PEA level those are the types of analysis that are being done and we're looking at at previous projects and trying to find a, something similar that is going to follow along the same schedule and, and I wanted to ask you too. I mean, there, there's obviously different types of mining. I mean, you're hearing people more and more in base metals talk about about block caving and panel caving, um, larger maybe bulk tonnage underground things. I mean, m- maybe just for the listeners, a little bit of, of color on you know these types of underground and, and maybe like because we're hearing that block cave term quite a bit. Maybe a little bit of what goes into the engineering for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing to to start with is we're going back to what we we uh, pre-wrecked our conversation by, but uh, you really need to understand your geology and your mineral deposit because these methods like block caving, open pit, uh, even large open stope mining are are bulk tonnage operations. So they often don't fit well with a a high grade veined type deposit. Mm -hmm. We're typically talking talking about porphyries Mm -hmm. and you need a, a massive continuous contiguous deposit for these types of mines to work Mm -hmm. and what often happens is you have owners of exploration companies that know that these block tonnage operations are the lowest cost operations per ton and so they like to use those because they can use a, a low dollars per ton uh, cost mining cost but often their deposits don't follow in with that and what ends up happening is you end up with huge amounts of dilution Uh, if you don't have a very well-defined deposit uh, and you use a bulk bulk methodology you 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 can end up with 50 percent plus dilution which will absolutely sink your project kill you so the mining method has to be matched to the geology uh, as well as the geotechnical features and strength of the rock so especially when we talk about uh, block cave operations, you need a very specific type and strength of rock because you are assuming or wanting the rock to break on its own. Yeah. Uh, which often, you know, isn't the case. You need very specific geology for that to work. And it's become popular, I mean, just because as we look at, like you said, the porphyries, a lot of its mineralization is getting deeper. And it's way, like, I've heard it described almost like an underground open pit. It is. And, and yeah. your cost can approach that of a, an open pit mine with a block cave operation. But one thing to, to make sure you understand with block caving is you have a massive amount of pre-production development costs. Uh, before you can get a block cave mine in operation. Mm-hmm. So they're they're quite a capital intensive upfront uh, and you need a robust project and there's a lot of risk in them to do with the the you know the the geotech of the rock to make to have that understanding to know that it's going to break. Mm-hmm. And so they often require a lot more studies in in the feasibility uh, section and they need a lot more capex uh, 
well up front of when your payback is going to start. Which is why you usually see larger companies undertaking these. Like you need a, a lot of companies talking about blockchain, talk about a large joint venture partner or somebody can fund a multi-billion dollar development. That's right. Um, and uh, so, Stephen, the other thing, because uh, obviously you have a background in metallurgy, we touched on this a little bit, but there's obviously things that can go wrong in the flow sheet, um, whether that be your grind, whether your material doesn't quite float well enough, etc. We're working with the chemistry and the reagents. But, but for our listeners who may not be metallurgists or who might not have that much depth and knowledge in the field, I mean, what are sort of some of the major things that go into considering things like grind and flotation and, and, and what can go wrong in that res- in that respect? Yeah, there's, well, there's a bit. A lot of a things. Lot, a lot of things can go wrong. Uh, but, you know, the most important thing is to get some metallurgy data up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can start with the smaller program. It does require some larger core, uh, typically HQ type sizes. And what you'll do is you'll do some bench scale tests and you'll determine what how much power is needed to break that rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll look at what how fine do we have to grind that rock in order to achieve the recoveries that we want. And we can also use that testing to eliminate some of those uh, critical flaws that may pop out and say, you know what, you're just not going to be able to recover this. It's a, it's a refractory deposit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's too much oxide in there. There's there's a whole bunch of uh, kind of fatal flaws that you can eliminate with just some really initial metallurgy studies. But uh, some of the other things we talked talked a little bit about uh, water. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to do up a you know a water balance. You're going to do a mass balance. You're going to try to understand you know how many stages of crushing what your total power requirements are. Uh, is this a flotation? Is this a, a leach project? Mm-hmm. You know, those then can get into the environmental aspects. So, you know, the initial metallurgy side of the feasibility or the pre-fees or even into scoping can really influence how you need to take your environmental approach uh, as well as a number of other aspects of your, your engineering studies that you do. And if you want sort of an example of what Stem's talking about in terms of water concerns, you can look at a recent headline we had on Mount Milligan, which was forced to uh, briefly shut down circuit operations because there wasn't actually enough water this past winter, uh, and they didn't really account for Well, you can't really account for it, but it, it materially impacted their operations. So you can see how water is a massive consideration in mining, and not just that, it's becoming more so with scarcity of water around some of the mine sites, uh, especially in developing countries. It's a huge issue. You'll hear from Gold Corp and some of the majors. But speaking of which, uh, Stefan, this is sort of the last section of what I wanted to ask you a little bit about. We've been talking a lot about uh, innovation and new technologies on the show recently. Um, I'll ask you about a couple of the actual practicalities of what some of these maybe higher thinking uh, elements might be, but um, from boots on the ground point of view, I mean, is there um, anything in terms of new processes and technologies that you're seeing coming around the corner or in 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 use right now in terms of at the mine site? Yeah, absolutely. I, I won't touch on the new technologies in the mineral processing and metallurgy side just because mm-hmm. I've been away from that side of the industry for about five years, and yeah. I'm sure a lot has changed uh, since I, I was doing that full time. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, underground, we're you know things are advancing there uh you know we're getting a lot more into uh you know communication systems underground tracking uh, fleet management uh on-demand type equipment utilization we're also looking at more tele-remote style mining uh you know in in mining in particular especially in operations safety is is our biggest concern and our biggest focus uh so we're doing a lot of uh new work into 
creating a safer environment for the operators and the workers in the mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there is some new techniques that we're seeing. We're seeing new uh, survey and scanning techniques. We're seeing the, uh, the use of drones underground yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and some of those aspects. But, you know, in general, the, the underground industry is, you know, for operating mines is still, you know, working a little bit in the past. We probably aren't as uh, progressive as you know some of the the newer open pit methods and, and the, the tracking but uh, we're getting there and we are seeing changes for sure oh and that's a lot to you uh, we've we've spoken with a few people who are sort of work and change managers etc it's, it's very difficult because because like you said safety considerations in the underground you can't go around haphazardly changing processes that have kept people safe for 100 years but uh what are the one of the big conversations in the industry is shrinking the footprint right like t- yep. getting as much infrastructure as you can off the surface and underground do you think that's 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 something that's gonna gonna actually happen like i mean is that practical yeah like you know the the footprint issue is, a, is an important one and i think it's on a, a case-by-case basis and you know if you have if you are operating in an area where you have uh very limited room due to glaciers or watersheds um you know that that has to be considered uh to to try to move some of this infrastructure underground. This also happens in extremely cold climates where you don't want to have massive uh, cold storage facilities. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's, there's a cost. Underground development is, is expensive. And so, you know, uh, if you have a large enough project or a long-term type project with a, you know massive amounts of tonnage, you can justify the cost of putting those things underground uh, a lot you know a lot easier mm-hmm. and it depends i guess on the trade-off of the social license costs and a whole bunch of socio-political things which are not going to come into play on the absolutely. engineering corner absolutely we, yeah. you know, we, do, we do look at uh you know backfill is an important one for underground mining yeah to try to reduce the footprint of tailings ponds on surface by getting as much of that rock back underground as possible uh using that for structural fill or or, or paste fill yeah yeah. Well, uh, this has been our inaugural engineering corner. We did go a little bit broader than the 43101 topic I said at the beginning, but I can't, I can't resist, you know me, when I start talking. Uh, but uh, once again, we have been joined by Stefan Wozniak, who's a senior engineer at Procon Mining and Tunneling. Thanks for joining us, Stefan. Thank you. And welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Stefan Wozniak from Procon Mining and Tunneling for uh, breaking the proverbial bottle on the maiden voyage of the engineering corner. If you're uh, interested in more information on Procon, head over to ProconGroup.net. You can check out their current portfolio projects uh, and some of the services they offer, which I uh, mentioned at the onset. So, hey, how exciting was that? We did it. We got it off the ground. Uh, So the Engineering Corner is going to be continuing full force. We'll be looking for future guests to come on, talk a little bit about maybe more specialized items in the engineering field, uh, including things like tailings design. We know that's a big issue. Waste management, closure, all all big topics in the industry today. We talked a little bit about uh, shrinking the footprint there at the the end of the show there with Stefan. So there's so many topics that we can tackle, both uh, moving ahead in the Geology Corner and the Engineering Corner. But 
Now it's time for the big reveal, the announcement. This isn't news for a lot of people, especially people who follow our website and uh, Leslie's Twitter, but Leslie is on maternity leave. So we offer our, our, our grand congratulations to Leslie and the incoming wee baby that uh, is due uh, relatively shortly. Leslie will be on mat leave for about a year. Uh, so uh, she might drop by to uh, do a few guest spots, depending on how she's feeling for the Geology Corner. Uh, but uh, we will be looking for uh, also some guests to sort of fill in that gap uh, to uh, bring you those regular updates from the geology side as well. So let's look forward to that. Uh, we'll uh, be on the lookout for uh, some, some interesting engineering angles uh, to uh, push forward with with the Engineering Corner, as well as uh, some complementary items and topics and discussions from the geology side uh, that we could sort of bring together to uh, really get uh, get that discussion flowing. So it is indeed exciting times at the Northern Miner Podcast. But now let's hear from our weekly sponsor, McEwen Mining. That is MUX, ticker symbol MUX on the New York and Toronto Stock Exchanges. McEwen Mining is a diversified gold producer with three operating mines in the Americas and the Gold Bar Mine under construction in Nevada. Uh, so let's hear from our staff writer, Richard Corisa in Toronto and Executive Chairman of McEwen Mining, Rob McEwen. You mentioned the Black Fox Project as one that you're very excited about. What other projects do you have that are a big deal to you right now? In November, we got a permit from the Bureau of Land Management in the U.S. to start construction on a gold mine in Nevada. And we're clearing site right now, readying it for um, construction of the facilities. It's gold bar in the Battle Mountain Cortez trend. It's 40 miles south of Barrick's largest gold mine and their biggest gold discovery, Gold Rush. It's a prolific area. We'll have it built next year and be running commercially in 2019, doing about 65,000 ounces a year. It's got about a six-year life, but we can see moving that to nine years with the exploration that we're doing. We had thought we would have started building this at least three years ago, but we were required to do a full environmental impact study. It was an area that was mined in the 80s, so a brownfield site, and that explains the capital cost being low at $60 million dollars. And we'll be continuing to explore in that area. We have a large land package that we still like. And thanks again to staff writer Richard Corisa and executive chairman Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining for joining us on the Mining Minute this week. For more information, do check out McEwen Mining. Once again, MUX on the Toronto and New York Stocks Exchanges and located at McEwenMining.com. And finally, one more exciting announcement from the Northern Miner. Uh, just to wrap up the show here, we are bringing back our Canadian Mining Symposium in London, England. Uh, this was an event we uh, kick-started last year in April, a really exciting where we bring Canadian companies uh, and Canadian government participants 
over to London to talk to European investors to get the word and discourse about Canadian mining out there internationally. We had fantastic participation from the junior level right up to senior executives from Goldcorp and Barrick. We had Lucas Lundin and Robert Friedland. So expect another packed stack of speakers this year. Some great roundtables. I will be there with all my podcast gear, moderating a couple panels uh, and uh, just having a great time because we uh, we really do push forward that uh, dialogue on Canadian mining at this event. And it's really uh, industry leading in terms of, of packaging that all up and bringing that to an international audience and talking about the promising uh, aspects of Canadian jurisdictions and how Canada is such a favorable jurisdiction for mining and natural resource extraction generally. So it is a fantastic event. So this year we will be having the Canadian Mining Symposium at Canada House in London, April 24th and 25th. That's right, we extended it to two days this year. Uh, it was so popular, uh, we just packed out the room. So uh, this year we're going to do it over two days. I believe there are speaking slots and sponsorships still available. So uh, reach out to our Toronto office uh, or head over to northernminer.com for updates on our Canadian Mining Symposium. Another great event once again, April 24th and 25th of 2018. Um, and finally, uh, just to close out the show, please do head down to the VIRC and AMEBC's Roundup. This coming week, I'll be down there. Head over to the Northern Miner booth, pick up a free copy of the paper chat with our terrific staff from Toronto uh, and maybe think about that subscription um, but uh, yeah and also as I mentioned if you see me wandering around like a lost lamb with a microphone please do point me in the right direction I tend to get a little overwhelmed at these things so you know but uh, no I'm really looking forward to it. it's going to be a great time uh, so hopefully I'll see everyone down there it might slightly impact our broadcast schedule next week so if we're not on Tuesday I'll, I'll get the podcast out on Wednesday just because of the show schedule and we'll have a ton of really good content so it's uh, something to look forward to but thanks again for subscribing Subscribing, streaming, downloading, however you consume the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, and please do head over to iTunes. Hit us a little bit of a rating there. It doesn't have to be five stars. Every little rating counts. A little bit of a review, maybe. Uh, and do tune into the Northern Miners social media feeds, Twitter and Facebook, uh, for updates from the conferences next week. Uh, we will be down there at the show uh, getting you the uh, cutting-edge news from uh, both the VIRC and Roundup. So uh, do, uh, do, do catch our social media feeds as well. But uh, thanks once again for tuning in. Uh, I am Matthew Keevil, and I will certainly... Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.